to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodion Ebbinghausen, and today's topic is Many Third Forces, the role of Myanmar's ethnic armed organizations. I would like to discuss the topic with Sai Kun Sai and Ashley South. Sai Kun Sai is a veteran of politics in Myanmar. He has fought the Burmese army as a rebel from 1969 to 1996. He was editor-in-chief of the Shan Herald Agency for News and is member of the Peace Process Steering Committee today. Ashley South has 20 years experience as an independent author, researcher, and consultant. He has worked closely with a number of ethnic stakeholders in Burma, Myanmar, including ethnic armed organizations, civil society actors, and political parties. Thank you for joining us today. So let's start with the discussion. Myanmar has about a dozen influential ethnic armed organizations and a large number of smaller ones. Some have actively fought the Tatmadaw or the Burmese military for decades. Others have agreed to the nationwide ceasefire agreement. How has the coup d'etat on February 1st been received or perceived among the various ethnic armed organizations? Thank you very much. Even before the coup, the ethnic armed organizations were divided into two main groupings. The first one, the first grouping, I have 10 signatories of the Nationwide Ceasefire Agreement or NCA. They um, mostly based along the Thai border. Only one Chin National Front is based along India. As for the eight other non-signatories, uh, only one is based along the Thai border. The rest are based along the Chinese border. So. The role of these neighboring countries all are also quite important, you might say. Generally, um, camp one or grouping one is for dialogue, which doesn't mean that they wanted to restart the peace process that was uh, suspended by the coup. But dialogue to overcome uh, the present crisis in line with most of the, which the policy is in line with most of the neighboring countries and ASEAN, of course. And then as for the second grouping, uh, except for the Kachins and AAs, other groups uh, appear to be uh, trying to share uh, the Shan state, which is the biggest state in the whole of Burma among themselves. Yeah. Uh, that is the situation. Yeah. So maybe can you add a little bit on like, was it more like by surprise? Uh, have they been irritated when the coup d'etat actually happened? Well, as soon as the report came out on the 1st of February, 
the 10 EAOs had the ad hoc meeting, which denounced the coup. Thank you. And maybe Ashley, what so um, when you heard about the coup and what did your like sources or, or contacts in the ethnic um, areas, what, what did you get, for, uh, what kind of information did you get from them after the coup happened? Well, I guess, um, like Sai uh, Kunsai has told us, um, it was uh, varying responses from different EAOs. I think most groups were surprised. Some may have had a, a very short um, warning from the Myanmar army that the coup was imminent, but in most cases, it was quite a shock. Um, and as Sai Kunsai has said, EAOs in Myanmar have responded in uh, many different ways. Uh, as he mentioned, only one of the uh, NCA signatory groups, the Chin National Front, has actually formally aligned itself with the NUG, um, and that's uh, the, the CNF. Um, the other groups, I think there's been a variety of different responses, really. It, it is important, I think, to note that on the 13th and 14th of February, the Newmont State Party and the KNU both came out with very strong statements uh, denouncing the coup and uh, in support of the CDM movement. And um, uh, also around that time, the PPST groups uh, made a, a pretty good statement as well. Um, since then, um, we've seen, yeah, a whole range of different um, responses uh, Some of the most powerful EAOs in the country, um, for example, the UWSA, the Arakan Army, um, I, I think they have their own agendas of uh, self-determination and their own local political realities. Um, I guess you can say that those groups have remained somewhat neutral. Um, how long that will continue, of course, is a very interesting question. And I think behind the scenes, even some of the EAOs, which have not been directly opposing the junta, have found ways of uh, indirectly supporting uh, the PDFs. But I think it's also noteworthy, uh, as uh, Sai Kunsai was saying, the difference between the NCA and the non-NCA signatory groups is really important. Um, but probably the two EAOs that have been the strongest in their opposition to the coup would be the KNU, which of course is an NCA signatory group, and the KIO, which isn't. Yeah, but that that would mean that uh, somehow, even though there, you have to separate like the NCO signatories and not not uh, signing uh, the NCA, but you say like we have like both groups have like somehow opposed and supported um, the coup. So so what what can we make out of this if you say we have to separate these two groups? But in this case, it's obvious they are on both sides of the frontline, if you can say so. Uh, if, if that's a question for me, yes. Um, I think partly what it indicates is that, unsurprisingly, um, Myanmar's ethnic armed organizations uh, often contain different viewpoints. I mean, I think that's often most publicly seen in the case of the KNU, but all of the different groups have their own uh, you know, internal discussions on this. And of course, for most EAOs, the primary agenda is self-determination through federalism. And in some ways, therefore, the current crisis, it recalls the situation in the 1990s when some EAOs um, agreed ceasefires with the military government um, for a number of reasons, but partly in order to get some de facto local autonomy, um, whereas other EAOs uh, aligned themselves with the opposition in exile. And I guess those are 
although the situation now is very different to the situation in uh, after 1988 and 1990, I think we can see those different tensions playing out within Myanmar's EAOs. And also, you know, we, uh, I mentioned earlier um, uh, the different uh, opinions that exist within the KNU. And of course, different KNU brigades and districts have slightly different attitudes towards the I think generally there's a very strong dislike of the junta and uh, a, a realization uh, right from the beginning that the coup is an absolute disaster for Myanmar. But in terms of how the EAOs should respond, I think there's a variety of views. Some EAOs and leaders um, see this as a, an opportunity to put great pressure on the Tatmadaw and maybe for the first time in generations to have a common bond of solidarity between the EAOs and more urban-based activists who've been struggling for democracy. I think other uh, of the EAOs in Myanmar, they really do not have the military capacity to stand up to the junta. So whilst they may want to protect and defend the PDFs as much as they can, they don't feel they can take the fight to the junta. So that, that's quite an important uh, difference between uh, the variety of different EAOs. Okay, I would like to come to, back to the unity or this unity of uh, the different groups maybe later. So shortly after the coup, like the civil disobedient movement started, then the national unity government was formed and the People's Defense Force even a bit later. And um, so the NUG claims to be inclusive. And um, like from your point of view, Sai Kunsai, how inclusive is uh, the NUG? Well, the NLD, from which the NUG originates, is made up of uh, uh, members from all nationalities, but mainly the Burmans or Burmas, of course. Uh, that might be uh, one reason the NUG says it is inclusive. It has also formed what they call um, national unit, uh, Unity Coordination Committee or Consulting Committee, something, uh, which many of the non-Burmans also participate. That's another reason, of course. Uh, however, uh, one thing very clear is that apart from the uh, CNF, Chin National Front, even the K KNU, uh, uh, the most staunchest supporter among, uh, among, among the signatories uh, doesn't regard itself as part of the NUG. You might say that. No? Uh, there is the KIO, of course, but KIO is also uh, operating quite independently from the NUG. Uh, so it is very difficult to support the NUG's claim uh, at present, I would say. Um, so what, what would be necessary uh, for the NUG to be, be more inclusive? It is like this. I can show, uh, I can inform you the recent uh, developments. The NUG had uh, consulted many of the EOs and also the 
non-Burman ethnic parties for a federal democracy charter, which is uh, divided into part one and part two. Most of part one were proposed by the um, ethnic political parties and the EOs, uh, and it was adopted. But the second one had one problem. Uh, the EAOs won, the NUCC to, to be the guiding organ for NUG and CRPH. But both CRPH and NUG had rejected. Uh, we don't need to be guided. We, we should coordinate among ourselves. Uh, the three organs should coordinate and cooperate, which is uh, one, one reason, big reason that the non-Burman groups could not accept. Um, maybe Ashley, you would like to add something to this point? Yes, thank you. Um, I, I think Sai Kunzai covered most of it. I, I guess the, uh, the NUG is, is very impressive in, in many ways. Um, of course, it's been put together, um, no one was expecting the coup and it's been put together very much in real time. And so um, I, I um, sometimes when I, I read criticisms of the NUG, uh, I, I think, you know, it's, a, it's very easy to second guess, but very, um, very difficult for them to get it working in real time. And I think it's, it's important to note that the NUG um, does consist of, I think it's about 50-50 NLD ministers and ministers who are drawn from uh, ethnic civil society and uh, uh, sometimes from EAOs, or at least the proxies of the EAOs. And I think the NUG has got something like 30% women's participation. So that's really good. It, and I think there's a real attempt at inclusiveness there, um, which is very positive. Um, but um, like Saikens, I was saying, I, I guess the issue is really um, what is the status of the NUG and the other bodies which he mentioned, the CRPH for committee representing the Pithu uh, Kluto, um, which of course is the um, elected representatives from the November uh, 2020 election, nearly all of whom are NLD. And part of the problem with the previous peace process was the fact that the NLD government did not show any indication of being serious about taking the ethnic nationality um, aspirations and grievances seriously. So um, I think there's a need for um, a future Myanmar political uh, uh, leadership to move beyond the um, rather narrow positions of the old NLD government. And so this is a problem if the CRPH is considered to be sort of automatically um, uh, the uh, de facto legitimate government of the country just because of their election victory. And so as uh, Saikun Sai was telling us, that I think means that the national um, Unity Consultative uh, Conference, the NUCC, is uh, particularly important because this should be the forum in which the CRPH and other stakeholders, including EAOs, come together. And uh, that will, I think, help us then with the uh, reform of the Federal Charter, get a better understanding of exactly what is the status of the NUG. Um, at the moment, I think it's really uh, impressive and important to see the efforts that are being made, for example, in the field of education to develop a, a federal education policy. There's still quite a long way to go. And I mean, in, in answer to your earlier question, it seems to me that 
the, the root of the issue is what has been the fundamental um, problem uh, for Myanmar in terms of ethnic nationality politics, really, you know, since before independence. And that is the question of where does sovereignty lie? And I think for Myanmar's EAOs and ethnic political parties, um, there's a really uh, important principle that um, they control their own territories. So the Karen National Union, for example, has 1,500 schools. The New Mon State Party has a couple of hundred schools. The Kachin Independence Organization, more than that. And these are actually the only presently functional education uh, providers, basic education providers in the country, and they're run by the EAOs. So I think that the, the approach to federalism, which many of the ethnic stakeholders want to see, is a recognition of the reality of ethnic service delivery and governance on the ground, the sovereignty of ethnic systems, and that a, a future federal government has to be built on that reality. Whereas I, I think the attitude perhaps of some of the um, mainstream uh, Myanmar politicians is uh, an assumption that they already have legitimacy because of the election and almost an assumption that the ethnics have to follow them. And that, of course, is a rather patronizing point of view that has been one of the key problems in Burmese politics for generations. Uh, so I, we, I think we hope that uh, with the extraordinary circumstances now and uh, uh, the crises really of the last uh, seven months to coup and then COVID, this could create a unique opportunity to reimagine those relationships. I guess it is really, you know, the mother of all critical junctures. So you have been mentioning before already, like the, the coup and the current situation and COVID and the crisis can somehow maybe bring together uh, the divided forces and uh, groups and parties in the country. And uh, th there is the, uh, the saying, like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And uh, the EAOs have always been allied in their rejection of Bama's superiority and governance. Even though uh, there has been, like, a division in, within the EAOs and different EAOs have been partly even fighting each other. So do you see that there is a new spirit of unity within the EAOs? It is very difficult to say, of course. Um, after the coup, um, my friends have been saying that we have three C's now, uh, three C's crisis now in Burma. COVID, then coup, and now we have conflict. Or uh, some some would say even say that it is civil war, no? three C's crisis. And what is happening is that uh, the people of Burma are facing two opposing currents right now. One is the NUG, both the NUG and the SEC, they are for zero-sum game. You know? We fight to the finish. Most of the people, uh, you might say, support this thing, uh, this current, you might say. And the other current, is the 10 signatories plus the neighboring countries, the ASEAN, and even uh, the West. 
they are saying that there should be dialogue to overcome the political to, to, to the overcome the present crisis first. Uh, these are two currents that are going on in Myanmar. Yeah. And right at this moment, nobody can predict that who will be out, who will be coming out on top right now. Uh, however, China, India, and Thailand, all three countries, they are worried. No? These countries are going to be affected uh, if there is going to be a large-scale civil war inside Burma or even anarchy. No? Uh, at this state, the signatories, the 10 signatories, most of them, uh, they have called for mediation or facilitation by the um, witness signatories to the NCA. They are six of them, UN, EU, China, India, Thailand and Japan, plus the ASEAN, of course. Uh, they, they had made a proposal in May to all of them to help mediate or facilitate so that there is dialogue in the country. And then we might all bring the situation back to normal so that in, in the end we can restart the peace process. That is the situation. I cannot rightly say right now that the, um, the signatories have declared NUG as allies and SAC as enemies right now. It is the present situation. Because you see, the NUG has rejected the NCA, while the SEC still oppose the NCA. That is a very difficult situation for the for the signatories to decide. Yeah. So, so you you mentioned like these two currents. So there is one group you say who's willing to have a dialogue or who who holds the view that there is a dialogue needed and there is no other way out. And then there is this like second group, uh, mainly the SAC and the PDF and UG, like who have who want to have this fight to the final victory, something like that. Like um, yes. The so and the, but if you uh, but at the same time in social media and especially by um, those groups, you find this idea about a united front uh, that is like an NU, in a, like a unity of NUG, PDF, and the EIOs all fighting against the Tatmadaw. How realistic is such an idea of of a united front, given the two currents you have just uh, depicted? It is very difficult, of course. Even among the PDFs, um, according to the researchers, I'm sure 
Ashley can talk about it more, uh, more than me. About 150 PDFs, only about 25% are under the leadership of the NUG. The rest, they had been formed spontaneously and independently. Uh, they even have their own resources. They can even buy their own arms and ammunition. They don't have a central command, uh, a common strategy. They don't have a general headquarters to lead this war, to fight this war into victory. So it is a very confusing situation. I'm sure Ashley can help me in this. Gosh, thank you, Saikun. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I'll take as my starting point your comment about um, the, the, uh, the incredible commitment of the PDFs. And um, this reminds me of a comment from one of the uh, Yangon-based ambassadors. He, he said something to me back in February, which I think is still true, and it's extraordinary and, and really worrying. Uh, and he said that uh, every morning, the, the SAC junta generals, they wake up knowing they are winning. And every morning, the CDM people wake up knowing they are going to win. And <laughs> it's extraordinary that after seven months, both sides are convinced that victory is still at hand. And I, I, it, it's very difficult to predict um, how things will play out. Um, my understanding uh, is that the number of PDFs has maybe consolidated a bit. So I guess it, it's very difficult to know. No one has full information. Um, there are those uh, PDF groups, as Saikun Tsai was saying, that are fairly closely aligned with EAOs, particularly in Kachin, but I think also um, in Kareni. Um, there's a close connection between command and control, even between uh, the EAOs and the PDFs, um, particularly in these sort of ethnic rural areas. And then there's another group of PDFs, I think, which are more, probably fewer, but uh, very active, more urban-based. And I think these are, these are smaller groups and they are particularly uh, involved, I think, in a, in a lot of the um, uh, targeted attacks uh, the, using the improvised explosive devices. And as Saikun Sai was saying, I mean, there's, there's some PDFs have declared themselves to be directly under the control of the NUG. I'm not sure what that means. I think it's more of a political alliance. Um, others are, are closely aligned with the EAOs and may still, of course, have relationships with the NUG as well. And others are more independent. I, I think that there's some indication of increasing regional coordination so, for example, one of the most extraordinary aspects of the past six months has been the emergence of widespread anti-government action in the Sagaing region and Chin state, which historically have not been as much affected by armed conflict as many other parts of the country. So this is uh, really extraordinary. And we know that the Myanmar army is massing troops and the fear is that there will be a, a huge onslaught against the resistance forces in Sagaing and Chin. My understanding in these areas is that the PDFs are actually coordinating at least somewhat. In other areas, it's, it's very fragmented. And I think that makes it quite difficult for the PDFs to 
uh, work together, but it makes it very difficult for the Tatmadaw as well because it's such a fluid situation. And most of the PDS they've received, many of the fighters have received some training from EAOs. Some of them have received weapons as well. But these are mostly young people who had no military experience before February. So on the one hand, I think that does make them very vulnerable in, uh, as the fighting wears on because of their lack of experience. But also, um, I think it makes them very unpredictable and they're incredibly passionate. And I, I think that spirit of resistance against the coup is something which is, is still very, very strong. Yeah, thank you, Ashley. So we have been talking about the, the current developments and around, surrounding the coup d'etat. And I would like to step now a bit back and I would like to talk about, um, about this big issue and topic about federalism. Like over the past decade and even before, like federalism has been seen as the ultimate solution for the multi-ethnic country of Myanmar, like the only way to get out of this deadlock. And um, but what do the EAOs actually mean by federalism? Yeah, I, I, I do think that a federal solution to Myanmar's decades long state society and ethnic armed conflicts, I, I think federalism is a big part of the answer. But that's the easy part to say federalism. Of course, it's one of those. It's a contested concept, isn't it? It means different things to different people. Even uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD government talked quite a lot about federalism. Um, but I think what they practiced was a, a rather centralized authoritarian system with a, a certain amount of uh, decentralization and uh, uh, parceling out autonomy to local communities and uh, stakeholders. Whereas I think ethnic political parties and EAOs, when they talk about federalism, um, they're talking about something a lot more substantial. Um, it seems to me that this is perhaps the best opportunity historically in Myanmar, even since independence, since the Panglong, uh, Second Panglong Conference of 1947, to reimagine what kind of country Myanmar can be. And so I, I would want to say that federalism, of course, it's ultimately a sort of legal constitutional issue. And that means that there does need to be high level, elite level discussions uh, to change the constitution, or I think at this point to replace the constitution with a new federal constitution. That is part of it. And that part of the discussion, of course, I think we have to consider whether it's a symmetrical form of federalism where each of the sub-state units, the ethnic states, have uh, the same sort of powers and rights, which raises questions of what about the BAMA? Is it an eight-state solution, a 14-state solution? This is still really to be resolved. Or are we looking at something more asymmetrical? Because the situation in different ethnic areas is very different. As Saikun Sai has said, I mean, Shan State is a federal union in and of itself. So my personal feeling is that the kind of federalism appropriate for Myanmar is probably something quite uh, asymmetrical. But all of these are sort of top-down, what I would call blueprint approaches to federalism. And I, I want to argue that that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It seems to me a really important part of federalism is building from the bottom up. I mean, I mentioned uh, the more than 300,000 children who go to schools administered by EAOs in a number of different parts of the country. So when we look at federalism in the field of education, I think a good place to start is to look at existing practices. These are locally owned and delivered schools, mostly teaching in the mother tongue, multilingual education. I think a future federal education system, rather than 
as well as the need for top-down design, because there is a need for constitutional change. I think it needs to be something that emerges from the bottom up. And if we look at the key EAOs in the country, they have their own liberated zones. There are areas of mixed administration where EAOs provide health and education services, access to justice and administration. And particularly following the coup, these are the only legitimate and credible governance and services in Myanmar. So I think it's an interesting time to look again at the notion of federalism. And I want to argue for an emergent federalism, something that is built from the bottom up based on the existing authority, legitimacy, governance and services of the EAOs. Um, yeah, maybe if I can say, what can you tell us about this uh, bottom up idea? So what, uh, how do people like in, let's, let's say in Shan State, how do they talk about federalism? What is their idea about federalism? With the Shans, Kachins, and Jins, at least, um, if you talk about federalism, it, they go back to 1947 when they signed this uh, Long Agreement with General Aung San, uh, father of Aung San Suu Kyi, of course. The main points of the agreement were Number one, shared rule. The non-Burmans must have shared rule, mean, meaning that they must be in the central government to manage the common subjects. And number two, self-rule, which means that they must have their own autonomy. Their finance should be managed independently. They had done that even during the British rule. They wanted to maintain that and also expand on these rights. However, after independence, the agreement was not honored. Because to most of the Burman elites, they have another version of the country. With the, while the non-Burmans say this country came into being because of Panglong, they would say that this country came into being thousands of years ago by the three kings. We had been divided during the British rule. Now we have uh, gained independence and it's time to live together as we did before, which means that the Burmans will still be top dog and the others uh, underdog. This time even worse than it used to be before. In before, many of them were tributary states, tributary. They paid tributes to the Burmese king. But this time, the Burmese king has sent its troops, tax collectors, and also their representatives to govern these lands. 
which is very different, which they cannot accept. That's how they see it. Today, it is even worse because we have um, groups who think that federalism is not enough. It should be confederation. And some are even saying that we should follow China's ways. One country, two systems, like Wa and Mengla. They have their own government, own army. The Burmese army cannot enter. The, the Burmese government cannot enter the territory. They are independent. No? Of course, they are not by, by name, but in actuality, they, they have become de facto independent. And if we are not able to overcome the present crisis, this trend might expand. Man, already many are saying that we like the Huawei. Yeah. And if this happened, uh, I don't know. The, the country might be even better or worse. You might imagine. I won't give an answer to this. One of the central problems in Myanmar is or has always been that there is no or only very limited civilian control of armed forces. Like on the contrary, for example, the armed forces or the Takmador have traditionally been deeply intertwined with the economy and the government. And I would say like at least in some parts of the country, we find a similar structure in the ethnic minority areas where civilian control is not always very strong established um, about the ethnic armed organizations. What, what chances do you see that there will be someday a truly civilian, maybe federal uh, government, which controls the armed forces in the country? Whether there can be a future civilian government which controls the armed forces? Um, well, I think it's uh, a, an important aspiration. Um, I think we are a long way to go from there. Um, partly it's about the political cultures, isn't it? Um, I think this is why it's so difficult to see how the present crisis can uh, be resolved in a peaceful and just manner. Um, there is, uh, uh, I don't want to be talking too much in stereotypes and generalizations because that's not very helpful, but I think that most people who follow me and are particularly ethnic nationality people will know, uh, have a, some experience of this Mahabama agenda that uh, often is talked about, the mm -hmm. Burmanization of language and culture, the feeling of the um, the rightful role of the Tatmadaw to dominate society, uh, the Tatmadaw seeing itself as the only institution which has been able to hold the country together. I think that's, uh, to a certain extent, uh, to quite a large extent, I think that's rubbish, but it's very deeply ingrained in the Tatmadaw. So um, uh, it's difficult to imagine the current generation of Tatmadaw leaders really uh, accepting civilian rule, but I agree that it is something to be aimed for. Um, 
And this is an extraordinary period in Myanmar where perhaps we can reimagine what the country is like. I, I think another, maybe slightly more realistic way to look at it is to imagine what kind of roles uh, the Myanmar and army and also EAOs should play as armed groups. Um, I think there are codes of conduct, uh, professionalism, rights-based approaches which militaries around the world can adopt. Um, but I'm slightly dodging your question, um, uh, Robert Don, because uh, I, I think it is uh, uh, there is such a, a path dependency um, in Myanmar that uh, it, it's difficult to see how civilian rule in reality um, can succeed. And I think this is part of the problem that we saw under the previous NLD-led government. I mean, even under the previous government, of course, the Myanmar army had 25% of seats in the legislature. They, called, they controlled key elements of the economy, key ministries, and it wasn't enough. They still launched this ridiculous, stupid, really evil coup. Um, and so uh, the, the principle of uh, civilian control okay. um, is still very much in the background. Um, some of the EAOs have a better record over the years on and off to KNU. And certainly today, the KNU, okay, the chairman is, a, is a, a, the ex-chief of staff of the KNLA, but many of the KNU leaders are civilian. The Newmont State Party has a tradition of civilian rule, not always, but mostly. Um, so... Uh, I, I, I think that the principle of civilian rule is very important, but I think it needs to be also understood in the context of the political cultures in Myanmar, which are very uh, patriarchal, um, very zero sum, as, uh, as we were discussing earlier. And in that context, I think the country is sadly a long way from achieving uh, a, a principled civilian leadership of the military. So I would like to return to a point Saikonsai mentioned at the beginning when we started talking that he said that, of course, China, Thailand, India and uh, the European Union, US, UK, they all have or tried to influence developments in Myanmar and they have their own agendas, their own interests. And um, what would you say, what role does foreign aid and foreign support play for the EAOs and how can this Uh, support maybe help to solve the current situation? If you look at the, these three countries quite closely, you will find that Thailand, it allows most of the armed groups to stay along the border. But Thailand doesn't support them. Yeah? They have to Uh, find their own money, find their own guns, buy their own guns, and buy their own rice. It is like that. With China, one, e even the Burmese army had said that uh, There, none of the groups along the, along the Chinese border have signed the NCA. They even have their own weapons factories. And those who don't have can buy them from the other side. However, India is another country. India doesn't want war and it is not supporting any group right now. 
almost like Thailand, but not quite. It wants to, um, to help the country to get back on its own feet. So right now, uh, according to the information, India is trying to uh, set up federal workshops in the country because Indian federalism is one uh, quite admired by the Tatmadaw. And India wants to take advantage of this to hold federal workshops with the Tatmadaw, with the EOs, with the ethnic political parties, with the um, Burmese political parties, and also with the CAO, uh, CSOs, all that. Uh, they are hoping that by uh, the result of these workshops will be political dialogue again. And if they have political dialogue, they might reach some agreement. And after these agreement, they might uh, be able to hold a new election. That is how they think. They might succeed or they might not. Right now, they are with, like Thailand, they are tr just trying uh, trying to help as best they can. Maybe, maybe Ashley can say something before I come to the last question. How, so how much influence do these countries mentioned have on the ethnic armed organizations and how might this help to solve the current crisis? Oh, I wish I knew. Um, I, I think it varies group by group. Um, I mean, it, of course, uh, uh, it's often said that uh, some of the ex-Communist Party of Burma groups, particularly the UWSA, are, are very close to China, and I believe that is the case. Um, but it would be too simplistic to say that the WA, for example, are just clients of China. The WA have their own agenda. And uh, as uh, Sai Kunsai was saying earlier on, I mean, in, in many ways, the WA leadership have pretty much what they want. They've got a, a largely autonomous area carved out within the Union of Myanmar. Um, and uh, that's uh, quite useful for China also to have this sort of proxy force across the border that uh, is not uh, just uh, a client of China, but uh, certainly um, China has significant influence over the WA. Um, I think uh, then, of course, the question is what exactly are China's interests in Myanmar? And um, I think it's not necessarily uh, the case that China has an interest in resolving Myanmar's conflict. Certainly, I don't think China has a particular interest in Myanmar becoming a sort of Western democratic style rights based country. And I think it's more about protecting certain um, economic interests and particularly the Belt and Road projects. Um, Thailand, of course, has very significant interests in Myanmar. Um, and I, I wonder sometimes whether Thai policy um, always um, serves the countries, uh, the kingdom's uh, own best interests very well, because, uh, for example, one of the, uh, the, the, the greater the humanitarian crisis on the Myanmar side of the Thailand border, and I think we can include COVID here as well, this is a direct threat to Thailand. So I think in many ways it's in Thailand's interest to provide humanitarian support, including COVID vaccines, for example, in the border areas, because that creates a buffer preventing 
refugees uh, coming into Thailand and uh, preventing the, the pandemic spreading from Myanmar into Thailand. Unfortunately, Thai policy hasn't always been very um, supportive of uh, refugees and IDPs in the border areas. And as we know, there have been some pushbacks even quite recently when the Thai military has pushed refugees back into um, Myanmar. Um, I, I, I can't speak too much about India, but one does observe that there is a very... Uh, uh, active trade across the India-Myanmar border, all sorts of legal and illegal items being traded back and forth and uh, uh, Indian uh, security interests, of course, involved, uh, as well as uh, EAOs and uh, Tatmadaw interests on the other side of the border. Um, what it all adds up to, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think that uh, we can see the relative powerlessness of the ASEAN regional grouping in Myanmar. Um, and so... Uh, I think that perhaps there is more which uh, neighboring countries can do. Personally, as I said, I would like to see greater support for cross-border humanitarian support. Given the quite divided political landscape of, of Myanmar, so let's assume that the Burmese military, the Tamada, is overthrown. In your opinion, would then a time of peace and harmony begin for Myanmar? I think we're looking at a long and protracted and ugly struggle. The, the um, what is the right word? The anger, the hatred of the Tatmadaw on the part of many people from Myanmar, not only ethnic nationality citizens, um, the, the uh, disgust at the military coup, I think is very widespread. And I think that will continue even if there is concerted and violent suppression. Um, on the other hand, it's difficult under present circumstances to see the Tatmadaw being in a position where they would agree that the coup was a terrible mistake and that in the future the Myanmar army won't be involved in politics, which is, I think, the very um, um, clear demand of many of the anti-coup groups, including EAOs and PDFs. And there's a huge chasm still between those two um, demands and realities. So I would see uh, uh, probably an ugly, ongoing, protracted conflict. In that case, it seems to me one of the most important things to do is to strengthen the more progressive uh, elements. I would like to see greater international humanitarian support, as I said before, but also political and strategic support to um, ethnic armed organizations that are struggling for self-determination and trying to protect their communities and also trying to protect um, CDM and PDF people from the violence of the Tatmadaw. I certainly see the EAOs as being absolutely essential to any um, effective, legitimate, governance in Myanmar. And I think we can probably have a fairly, I'm now using a fairly broad definition of the EAOs because I wonder whether some of the PDFs will also evolve into militia type groups with more control of territory with their own administration and services. Um, and of course, that brings me back to my earlier um, comments about the emergent um, federalism in Myanmar. Um, I think that uh, mm -hmm. we may need to, uh, 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 the people of Myanmar, because of course I'm a foreigner um, now speaking from outside the country, um, uh, I think the people of Myanmar may have to reimagine uh, the country as a very different sort of place. Thank you. So maybe my question was not not asked in, in the best possible way. So lots of people say like all evil or most of evil in the country is coming from the Tatmadaw. And if we get rid of the Tatmadaw, then it will be like a prosperous, peaceful, harmonious society. If uh, the Tatmadaw is swept away, and uh, would, would that be really like um, a future of harmony, for mean future for, of harmony, of peace for the country? What, what do you think about it, Sai Kun Sai? Uh, this is a difficult question. Uh, um, when an institution 
There, this is a Chinese saying, when an institution uh, has been uh, existing for a long time, you cannot just wipe it away now and expect everything you have been dreaming all these years to become reality, of course. Um, during the 10 years negotiations with the Tatmadaw, um, the Tatmadaw would say, we will go back to the bar barracks uh, if all the EEOs have been disarmed. And to this, the EEOs has responded that uh, we will lay down our arms or we will be part of the federal armed forces when the Tatmadaw accept federalism and democracy and also after they have been uh, federalism and, and democracy has been established in this country. This was when, uh, this was before the coup. And now after the coup, it is very uncertain what will happen. But anyway, uh, what the EOs are saying is now, when the flood is high, you don't build a dam, but you have to prepare. And the PPST has been uh, working to reinvent itself. Probably by the end of the year, you might be hearing about an EEO summit, how it will be established, re-established will be a big question. Uh, let us wait for this question to be answered by then. Thank you. I have to thank you, Sai Kun Sai and Ashley South for joining me and Mari de Potchel and sharing your thoughts and insights. What we have seen is that the situation in Myanmar is not only very complex, but extremely hard to predict. It is impossible to tell which turn history will take, but it is also clear that whatever future lies ahead for Myanmar, the EAOs have a major part to play. Last but not least, I would like to thank the audience for listening, and please tune in again next time to Myanmar in a Podcast. <laughs>